Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collisions YYC Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old fashioned chat. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with State Corporate Training. Thank you to Craig Hass and his team for their ongoing support of the Collisions YYC podcast. Leadership, a term that conjures up everything from images of the hard charging Hollywood portrayal to the introverted, quiet CEO who emerges from their office with a magical path forward for the organization. No matter what comes to mind for you, I guarantee it'll be different than it was pre pandemic. After the past 18 months, the demand on leaders at all levels of the organization has changed. No longer can you rely on technical expertise alone. People on your team need you to be more human, and more importantly, human in a way that matters to them. Through my interviews with the team at SAIT, I was introduced to a more balanced approach to leadership, one that was truly a game changer for me and my perspective around what it is to be a successful leader. They call it the six leadership intelligences. Adaptability, emotional, collaborative, social, psychological, and digital intelligences. At first blush, aside from a couple, you may be asking yourself, wait a minute, what do these have to do with leadership? I'm here to tell you everything. We live in a world with a rapidly changing landscape that requires the need for human connection that has never been more important. How can you manage change if you are unable to create deep, safe, and meaningful connections with people around you? Simply put, you can't. Whether it's an entire organization, a division, a field office, or a small team, if you're not equipped with the intelligence you need, all the smarts in the world won't bring a group of people together to make the opportunities and challenges facing your organizations today. SAID is here to help you and your teams put together a package to put the skills in place for a safe, inclusive, and high-performing culture. To find out more about what they can do for you and your organization, please check them out at sait.ca slash corporate training, or better yet, open up your email and contact Craig Hess directly at craig.hess at sait.ca, that's H-E-S-S. He would love to chat with you and walk you through your needs and how they can put together a solution for you and your team. Hello and a warm collisions YYC. Welcome to Ms. Janet Brown. How are you doing, Janet? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the show. You are a principal at Janet Brown Opinion Research. And a few about a month ago, I reached out to a few friends in my circle and said, okay, we've got provincial, oh, sorry, we've got federal. We don't have anything going on provincial except maybe a bunch of drama. And we've got a municipal election coming out. Rather than go through the gamut of what I checked today was 27 candidates on the, ba- on the bill for the mayoral race. I wanted to reach out to people in the community that could provide some perspective to my audience from like high level all the way down to what's happening in, in our city. And your name came on the list. So maybe to set the stage, if anyone hasn't had the privilege or the opportunity to hear you speak or see some of your work, tell us a little bit about Janet Brown Opinion Research, what you do, and then let's get right into it. Well, I build myself as a pollster and political commentator. So, you know, that's what my company does. It specializes in public opinion research. Um, I am, I am, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, I, I used to, I have, I have a, um, one person who helps me with data a- analysis and he calls himself a number two in a one woman shop. Yes. <laughs> so, so there's myself and I have, uh, I have a data analyst and I, I have an assistant, but I, I run a pretty lean ship. And uh, basically what I do is I consult with clients about public opinion research. I design that research and then I sort of act as a broker to help um administer the research. So a lot of the stuff I do, I work with a company out of Edmonton called Trend Research when I want to do, uh, you know, interviews uh, in, in Edmonton, uh, when I want to use a field house in Edmonton. Okay. Um, you know, I also will subcontract to, to other stuff. So yeah, I guess a way to look at me is sort of like a, uh, a research broker. Um, but most of the work I do really is in the field of public opinion and public policy. And I do a little bit of kind of market research, but um, most of what I do is sort of more in the um, area of public affairs. And I have been working in this field for 33 years. I just, Facebook reminded me that I passed my 33-year <laughs> anniversary um, getting my first job in polling right out of university. I got a job with Goldfarb Consultants. It was in the middle of the 1988 uh, federal election. That was the free trade election. And so it was a great first job for a young poli sci student and and i've never looked back i've just uh i've i've loved my career in in polling and market research that's amazing it's like i love how much you love it in 33 years there's multiple (laughs) lifetimes packed into a 33 year kind of journey of kind of where you were to now or even the political landscape well and especially when you're self-employed right like it's it's like you know every every two or three years my my company kind of evolves the type of work Mm -hmm. i focus on the clients i focus on and um i've been self-employed now uh Gosh, I guess it's going to be coming up on uh, almost twenty years that I've been self-employed, and um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's quite a journey. When I decided to start my own company, I thought if I could do this for three or four years, that would be cool. <laughs> nice and twenty and x twenty dot 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 twenty years later. Yeah. So just to get context, so you will get people in a room 
uh, like the double-sided mirror kind of do polling that way. When I, when you get a random phone call, I don't know if I've got one recently, but it used to where people are like, Hey, we want your opinion on this. You would be the individual behind kind of constructing that survey, the str- the way the questions are posed, gathering the data, bringing it all together. So, so you are the face behind some of what all of us have maybe experienced at one time or another, not, not knowing who was driving that bus. <laughs> right. So the most common thing I do is I design quantitative research surveys. And I, and when I'm doing work in Alberta, I have a preference for live telephone interviewing. Um, If you remember the 2019 provincial election, um, you know, a lot of the polls were saying that the Conservatives were going to win by about a margin of 10 points. I said they were going to win by a margin of 19 percentage points and heads exploded. I took so much grief over that poll. Uh, The Conservatives actually ended up winning by a margin of 22 percent. So we just went through a federal election and the polls on a national level were great. Uh, But my my feeling here in Alberta is that some of the methodologies that work well in other parts of Canada don't work well here. So I'm very committed to doing stuff over the phone with live telephone operators when I can. Occasionally I'll do stuff online when that, that methodology makes sense. So for instance, with this municipal election, you said 27 candidates. I'm sure I counted 28. But anyway, with that number of candidates, decided that uh, an online survey was the only sensible way to do that. And yeah, I do focus groups. Used to be with the mirror um, now most of the focus groups are online because of COVID. Of course, which makes makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've just I, I I pulled up the Calgary.ca election information site this morning, and it was it was twenty eight. I had that on my page, and I crossed it out and wrote twenty seven. So as of this morning, it did say twenty seven, but that we're not splitting hairs because well, I still think that the point being that that it's an exorbitantly large number, which I think we're going to talk about the consideration of this is a big election when it comes to the change and what's on the table. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know what was confusing is the. Uh, the deadline to get your name on the ballot was a week ago Monday. And um, uh, and that morning, Kent Hare dropped out of the race. I saw and that. And that garnered a lot of news. But there was another candidate that jumped into the race. So that's how we've netted uh, out. I see at, that change. Yeah. That's how well, we've netted out at, at 28. Well, let's let's set the team. This is going to be going live probably next week. And we're currently, it is September 28th. We are a week and a day after the federal election. We're, we're, we're heading now headlong into a municipal election, which I'm just, and we joked offline, just starting to hear the media starting to talk about this morning. And that's on October 18th. So maybe you, you and I chatted a couple weeks ago and you said something that stuck with me. And I, and I've, and I've you know, like the comment about the federal election is what we're, you know, is what nobody wants, but we're getting the provincial election in Alberta is what we do want. And we're not getting, and the municipal election is the one that everyone's like, what a municipal election. I wasn't even, <laughs> wasn't even on my radar. I'm paraphrasing what you said, but I thought there was a lot to be taken away from that comment of, it feels like we're in this vortex right now of we called the municipal. Then all of a sudden the, the federal came out of like, I would say nowhere. And maybe the reflection of the outcome was a little bit of people's frustration of like, Hey, why, why are we focusing time, energy, money when we've got this other crisis, which I think maybe the liberals thought was, toning down, then all of a sudden ramped up. So I don't know, maybe we start at the top and work our way from, I don't want to say east to west, but from maybe the top of the funnel being Canada down to, you know, what matters in Calgary. How, any thoughts or perspective on kind of what you thought was going to happen versus how things unfolded on the, at the federal election stage, just, just a week ago on Monday? Yeah. Well, certainly the results weren't very surprising. I was watching the, the polls done by the credible national pollsters and there was remarkable consistency in them and the day after the election they were all patting themselves on the back for getting it within the margin of error Um, but poll after poll was just telling us really it was too close to call Um, and uh, really the liberals and the conservatives were in a statistical tie but historically the liberals do have a more uh, efficient vote than the conservatives do so it wasn't a surprise that the liberals were able to win more seats with the votes that they had um, and so overall, we didn't have, you know, they're calling it the election about nothing. Overall, the seat change didn't count very, uh, change very much. But if you look a little closer at a regional level, things did, the, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's the same number of cards in the deck, but the deck has been reshuffled a bit. And four seats in Alberta went to um, parties other than the Liberals. Four seats aren't a lot, but it is a lot in Alberta. It's a really big deal um, that four seats, two of them went to the NDP, two of them went to the to the Liberals. The other really critical thing about Alberta is even though the vast majority of seats were won by Conservatives and a majority of Albertans voted for Conservatives, the popular vote in Alberta for the Conservatives was down by about 14 percentage points. Um, that's huge in just two years. And so, you know, you talk about it was a federal election. I mean, we were being asked to choose between 
Trudeau O'Toole and the other federal leaders. But when you see that big drop in the conservative vote, when the conservatives were able to maybe hold, maintain or even slightly increase their vote in other regions, it does make you wonder whether the provincial dynamic was playing into what happened here in Alberta. And I've certainly heard some opinions and like saying, well, how could it have not? And, you know, just the, the loss of faith in our leadership here in Alberta through the last couple of years, primarily the, with this pandemic. And, you know, we're going to work our way down to kind of the municipal conversation. How much does that all affect? Like, to your point, like we, we were having a federal election, but what was happening in Alberta, which is typically, you know, we've had some swings, but it's a fairly confident, conservative, you know, voting populace. And all of a sudden we've had these changes. Is that just sheer a reflection of what's happened over the last couple of years from what you've run into kind of with your polling? Yeah, well, I mean, it's really hard to sort of quantify what the impact of the provincial government is. I mean, um, but it's always hard to uh, quantify what the various factors of voting are, you know, especially when you're talking about federal and provincial elections. So, um, you know, when I think about voting in a federal election, I always sort of equate it to going to Vegas, right? going to Vegas for a one-week vacation and only being able to play one chip the whole time you're there, right? You know, you have to decide. <laughs> that doesn't sound fun at all, actually. No, it doesn't sound fun at all, right? But you have, but you know, you make a judgment on the leader and which leader you like best. And then you look at the party platforms and maybe there's some things in the platform you like and some things you don't. And then you have to look at your local candidate and then you have to factor that in. And then you have to guess what your neighbors are going to do and whether, you know, whether you might cancel your vote out and who's got a chance of winning in your riding and who's got a chance of winning nationally. And it's a very sort of complicated process, but all you can really do is is mark one X. And so I think all of those things about, you know, leader, candidate, platform, then I think we have this other sort of like... Um, you know, unquantifiable factor, which was just how people were feeling about provincial politics and conservatism and choices made by conservative leaders during these critical COVID times. And so, you know, it's hard to quantify it, but it was definitely out there um, in the ether. And did it cause anybody to change their vote? Maybe. Did it cause some people to stay home? Maybe. But like I said, a 14-point drop in the conservatives um, that's a huge drop in two years. Something's going on there. And what it was arguably, again, my own armchair view is what was happening in the media for the Conservative Party in, in Alberta right around the election. It feels like it couldn't have been more negative from the, we made a mistake. We did, you know, backpedaling and shifting and felt like trying to appease certain groups ended up alienating almost all groups, you know, from that perspective. Let's not go too far down that road. A curious question. Do you know what, what the voter turnout was, uh, if, uh, like even uh, nationally? How do we do uh, compared to past elections? Yeah, I think, sorry, uh, um, you're, you're kissing me after it. I think it was around like sort of 58%. So, okay. so don't quote me if I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, wrong. No, but, sorry, I um, did put you, yeah, a hard yeah, number is a hard thing to be put on the spot for. And, and, I, and I'm, 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 I might not have the exact number wrong, but I did look at it. And so my conclusion was, well, it wasn't great, but it wasn't horrible. So it is sort of on pace with voter turnout for the last few elections. And given that we were in the middle of a pandemic and given some of the challenges that people faced while voting. Um, there were no voting booths at universities. Uh, the, 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 the mail-in process was complicated. Um, I know in most ridings across the country, there were fewer polling stations. And um, I know it took me longer to vote than I think it ever has, you know, in, um, you know, in all the times that I've been living in this particular neighborhood. So um, I think the voter turnout was, was pretty respectable, given the challenges that people uh, the barriers people would have faced when it came to Because 60% is kind of the number I've heard before is that mm-hmm. is, is a reasonable and kind of an expectation of, of like, okay, people are getting involved. I like what you said, though. We, we had a lot more roadblocks or obstacles. Like, we had to want it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was easy to be like, ah, this is too difficult. And I know for a lot of people, and certainly I have a lot of conversations that, and I've heard the term, the political homeless, of people feeling that they just don't know what part of they, you know, I like a piece of that, but well, I don't like that piece. I want that piece, but I don't want that piece. Have you seen in any of your research where, is there, is that on the rise or is it more just, again, the people I happen to talk to, we, our own biases are so influenced by our own peer groups. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we, we don't. We all think that we have a, a wide cross section of friends, um, but we also, we all, almost all of us do live in an echo chamber. And, and I see it all the time when I do work in Calgary versus Edmonton, right? Or, or Calgary versus Edmonton versus outside of the big cities. And, um, uh, you know, when I, when I attend a focus group at Edmonton, I think like, wow, this, this is playing out very different than it would um, in Calgary. So yeah, so we have our, we have our echo chambers, but really like, 
um, you know, we've measured this. We've measured sort of the political, where, the political ideology of Albertans, where they place themselves on an ideological spectrum. So a question I ask in a bunch of surveys, and it's something I plagiarize from academia, you know, we ask people to put themselves on a scale from zero to 10, where zero means left and 10 means right. And okay. consistently, survey after survey after survey, what we find is that the number that Albertans are most likely to choose is five, right in the middle. And then, um, but then, you know, when you look at the rest of the, the people who don't call themselves a five, Albertans are a little more likely to rate themselves on the right side of the spectrum than they are the left side of the spectrum. So if you've ever seen one of, my, yeah. one of my graphs, um, you know, I always sort of impress upon clients that Alberta is a centrist province that leans ever so slightly to the right. Um, the stereotype is we're a hugely right-wing province, um, but we, we get very few people at the extend at the at the either end of the spectrum. Okay. Um, most people sort of put themselves in the middle, and like I said, just ever so slightly leaning to the right. And then we take those numbers and we compare them against their other opinions, and we find that people do do a good job of placing themselves on that continuum. And we find that very few people are you know, 100% down the line, left wing or 100% down the line, right wing. So again, I mean, I think, I think, you know, people are complicated and society's complicated and our politics makes it look like we're probably more divided as a population than maybe the data shows. Oh, that's so interesting because you're right. That polarization and the feeling that I would get from the outside and is this extreme if you say, if you say, you know, energy, that means you're against the environment. If you say left, I say right. If you say you're pro this social issue, that means you're against that other social issue. But I think that also just makes for like, we all know, most of us know how social media works. It feeds you those extreme versions of what you clicked on and it makes it feel like it's a lot more polarizing. So to hear you say that the data doesn't say that in the same way, uh, that actually gives me a little bit of hope, to be honest. Yeah, and actually, you know, when you when you do surveys and you ask Albertans about the environment, um, most Albertans will tell you that they believe climate change is real, that they're concerned about climate change, that they think it's really important that we diversify our economy and that we move away from oil and gas. Like, majorities of Albertans hold those points of view. But at the same time, a majority of Albertans will tell you that it will hurt our economy if we move away from oil, the oil and gas sector too quickly, right? So... Um, you know, every time I look at survey results, I always think, you know, Albertans can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can, you know, we can hold contradictory views. And, but sometimes we get a bad rap because, as I said, the majority of Albertans believe in climate change. But we do have this subset of Albertans who, are, who don't. They believe it's a conspiracy or they, or they don't want to move towards uh, lower emissions or something like that. So we do have that subset. It's a bigger subset than in the rest of Canada. But the story gets sort of we, we focus on that, you know, they're, they're bigger, that's a bigger proportion of the population here in Alberta than it is elsewhere, but it's still just a minority opinion. I appreciate that, but it also, it, it makes it easy to put us in a category. It makes it easy to go, oh, well, there's some of this, so it must be, it must be all that, which kind of makes the headlines. Yeah, and, and you know, we're, here in Alberta, we're so predictable in our voting patterns, right? That's, it's no wonder everybody thinks we're raging conservatives because you just have to look at our, <laughs> at, our, at our vote. But, you know, another thing I've been saying recently is in Alberta politics right now, we essentially, we effectively have a two-party system. Mm -hmm. um, but when I do my polls, I sort of am struck by the fact that we may have a two-party political system, but we definitely have a multi-party electorate here in Alberta. So there, are, there is this big chunk of the population who just like, you know, they just don't feel entirely comfortable in the UCP camp and they don't feel entirely comfortable in the NDP camp. And they kind of miss the days when there was another alternative for them. That's interesting. And would that be a group that then ends up, and again, now I'm, I'm making my own assumptions, not voting or they go, Ugh, I guess I'm more this than I am that and end up putting their vote to maybe someplace that they're not fully, they're not fully committed or they're not all in? You know, it depends on the voters. Some of them of just, when they can't make up their mind, they don't vote. Others really sort of, force themselves to, you know, figure out, you know, the, the 51, 49 calculation and, yeah. and vote for the, the 51. But really the biggest determinants of a vote are things like, you know, are, is really age, right? So older people feel, system, yeah. feel more obliged to, to make, you know, to make the hard choice where, where younger people are a little more timid about um, uh, making the wrong choice, find it a little harder to wrap their minds around things. And so... Uh, yeah, so age is the biggest determinant of voter turnout. Ah, interesting, which which makes sense. You're still establishing kind of your views and where you sit on kind of that spectrum. And 
from where you've been raised versus what your own views are and what your peer groups are. So just, I'm going to pick on something. I'm going to pick a, I'm going to pick a thread, what you said, you know, climate, climate change, climate crisis. How does that, if we pull this all the way down, because sooner or later we've got to get to talking about what's happening and uh, that we have a municipal election. That's our next thing. We, <laughs> we need to get ready to vote on here on October 18th. I know we're falling into the same trap as everybody else, right? We've got this important municipal election, but there's just so many other things to... Uh, How does an, an item like that, and you know, I see the green line, I see the new flames arena, I see you know, a police funding, sprawl, inner city uh, taxes, those all make sense to me in terms of like, well, that feels like something that a, a municipal government can put their weight behind and have influence on. When I hear climate crisis, I go, yes, that's important, and obviously it's on our mind. How does Calgary City Council, like, are they able to play a role in that? And I know we all play a small role, so I don't want to minimize that, but it feels like it's at a different level compared to some of the issues that we can like reach out and touch as they pass through our neighborhoods or affect our way of like day-to-day living. Right. Well, climate change is an important issue to Albertans, um, the majority of Albertans, but there are other issues right now that just sort of eclipse that issue. And so, you know, you'll, You'll do polls across the country and ask people what the most important issue is, and climate will show up quite highly outside of Alberta. And again, because it doesn't show up highly in Alberta, people assume we don't care. It's not that we don't care, it's just that we've got other issues right now that are eclipsing concern about climate change. And the problem is, is Albertans are very focused on our economic situation. And what they want to hear from mayoralty candidates, for instance, is... What can we do to kickstart this economy? What can we do to, uh, you know, to speed up the economic recovery from COVID? So that's number one. The other issue that I really see popping up in my polls, and it's not really a municipal issue, is people are getting very anxious about our social programs, healthcare in particular, but also education. Those two social programs have really taken a hit through COVID. And, um, you know, uh, another one of the things I say all the time is that, you know, here in Alberta, we like to pretend that we're fiscal conservatives, um, but really what Albertans care about is low taxes. <laughs> we're not particularly fiscally conservative in any other respect. We love our social programs. We want our social programs to be strong. And so I think now we're in this situation where Albertans want, you know, to kickstart the economy, but they're very anxious about the state of our social programs. So I think you're going to see a real focus in that, maybe not in the municipal election, but after the municipal election, when we get back to provincial politics, federal politics, it's like, you know, how do we get out of this pandemic um, and get our healthcare and our education system back to the level that, you know, that we just want as Canadians and Albertans? I love how you're taking what maybe you've, you've caught me on a couple of going fiscal concern, you go, well, actually the polls say this is actually what you care about. I'm like, oh, you got me. You kind of peeled back a layer there. I love the value of good research and good data. <laughs> Because I'm like, yes, no, absolutely identify as a fiscal conservative. But well, when you say that, I hugely value these other elements. So, but you're right. Low taxes is really, if I had to check a box there, that would have been it. So I, <laughs> I, I, I love how we might lie to ourselves, but our polls and the data comes together to create a picture. So talking about that, things like healthcare, like education, again, I see those more as provincial, not necessarily municipally influenced items. Even though I look to, you know, I had someone, I was chatting with someone the other day and they said, yeah, you think about federal or you think about provincial, you pick a color, you pick a shirt, you pick a team. Where municipal, it's a lot more personal. It's a lot more, well, what's my neighbor doing and what's happening or how's that's actually going to affect my community, which might now have densification going on or there might be a, a a, a, a big construction project going right through a block over from my house. How does that differ in terms of our ability to start to look at candidates? Because part of this is like, we're not here to talk about the candidates as individuals, but how do we start filtering down what matters to us when we walk into that, that polling station on October, on October 18th as, you know, Calgarians? Well, it's one of the things that is making this um, municipal election so challenging is because the top of mind concerns for, for Calgarians right now you know, are things that don't traditionally fall under municipal politics, right? Like, you know, city council maybe can have a role in, you know, creating a vibrant city that's going to attract business, but they don't really have the same economic levers that some other levels of government do. And certainly they don't have a lot of levers when it comes to, to health and education. So, um, so that's making it hard to, for, you know, for the mayoralty candidates, for the ward candidates to really sort of get their, their message um, out there. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, municipal politics affects us on a on a daily basis, um, and you know we're very touched by municipal politics. So it is kind of ironic that we always have the lowest voter turnout at the municipal level. And 
and the other thing is, is like this um, municipal election, I keep third is thinking, well, what are the right comparators? Because, um, you know, not every municipal election is the same. And one of the big things about this election that makes it different from typical municipal elections is we do not have an incumbent mayor. And most of the ward seats are up for grabs as well. So this would normally um, make this, this should make this a very interesting election, a highly contested election with a high voter turnout. Um, but because, even though we've got so much at stake, we're just so consumed with other things. Um, you know, a reporter um, asked me a question yesterday, asked me to comment on voter apathy. And I said, like, I just don't want to call it apathy. I just think people are overwhelmed. Uh, I think people just have so much on their plate. I just, you know, I, I, I wish people were more informed about the municipal election at this point, but I can hardly blame anybody when, you know, when the concerns are just so complicated right now. And, um, and it's really hard to, you know, you may care in, in my neighborhood, there's, there's lots of talk about um, towers going up that are casting shades on residential property. That seems to be the really hot local issue. But, um, you know, we don't like to be paying more attention to that kind of stuff. But um, boy, you get the COVID numbers every day and uh, um, you get the economic numbers and it's really hard to stay focused on that local stuff. Well, the difference between apathy and just fatigue, I think, are yeah. different. Apathy implies something different to me where I'm just like, oh, I'm just so overwhelmed. Maybe I'm just going to turn the radio off or turn, you know, whatever my, my consumption source is off for five minutes, which, which let's be honest, not very many of us do as we're getting bombarded with messages all the time. So let's talk about, you made the comment offline. You know, we've, we, you know, we've, I said, well, Hey, what's, what's coming down the pipe after this? You go, well, Hey, let's not forget on October 18th, we have seven elections. We have seven things that were, so I'm just starting to hear this morning, CBC had a piece on uh, daylight savings and talking about that. So we're, we have a plebiscite, which is a word I think is relatively new in our vernacular. I saw a word I've heard growing up. So maybe let's talk a little bit about like, what is, what's all getting jammed onto this ballot on October 18th and what can we expect to see when we walk? Because we can't really stand there and Google it, right? While we're behind the privacy screen and we're like, whoa, I need some more information here before I circle something or check a box. So what, what can we expect to see? And in some of your polling, what like, are, are people, are we going to get it or are people just going to be overwhelmed by these questions? Right. Well, you know, there's there's seven questions on the ballot. And I always have to count them off in my fingers because, you know, even though I think about this constantly, it's always easy for me to forget things. And so I'm always counting the seven things we have to to vote on when I'm I'm seeing friends and stuff. And even my most politically engaged friends will say like, oh, I forgot about that one or oh, I forgot about that one. So, um, you know, the joke I'm bringing is, you know, bring a long pencil when you go to vote because you're going to have to vote for mayor. You're going to have to vote for councillor school board. Um, we're going to have a plebiscite on equalization, a plebiscite on daylight saving time, a plebiscite on fluoride, and we have Senate elections. And uh, so, as I said, you know, uh, with the federal election, we had to sort of, you know, uh, weigh all these factors and then cast one vote. Here, we're going to have this, uh, this longer thing. And um, so, in the federal election, you had to you know, depending on where you live, you had to think about what, you know, two, three, maybe four parties were saying and decide between those three or four parties. Well, now we've got 28 mayoralty candidates. Um, depending on what ward you live in, you could have a dozen, you know, you, you, you could have eight, nine, ten candidates running at the ward level. Um, you know, school board, I, you know, I've barely thought about it. I, I, and I'm pretty engaged. Right. So, um, so anyway, it's, it's, it's seven, it's, it's seven different votes you have to cast, but you have very, a, a, a lot of choices within each of the seven. And the other thing that I think makes municipal politics challenging for people and keeps people away is at the federal and provincial level, we have political parties and that gives us a shorthand uh, for who we should take seriously and who we aren't. So there'll be some voters who are just like, point me in the direction of the most progressive candidate and I'll vote for them, or point me in the direction of the most conservative candidate. Well, it's, it, you know, you can kind of figure those things out at the municipal level, but it's, it's, just, it's just not as straightforward. You don't have that easy shorthand that you have um, when you go to vote in other levels of government. So mayor, which is the one we're hearing a little bit, and we think about provincial, uh, federal, I should say, there's a lot of media dollars behind it. Like they put messages out. There's a campaign, you know, as a marketer, if you want to influence the way people think, you've got to spend some time and some money with the, with the right messaging to get it out in front of them to then create an action. That clearly almost was sidelined because of the federal election. And like, well, I'm assuming as if I'm a candidate in Calgary, I'm kind of frustrated because 
there's no point in almost even being in market, if you will, during that time because the federal the federal the, the federal election was taking up all the bandwidth. And now we've got a, like a three week sprint. Is this a bit of just like as for for these specific candidates at the mayoral level? Are they just out there knocking on doors trying to get as much FaceTime as they can? Because I'm just thinking about what tactics you pull out when you've got a three week sprint to the finish line. Sure, and uh, I mean what I'm seeing is uh, a lot of use of social media. Right, there's a lot of social media advertising. Uh, lawn signs, you know, I'm the, I'm the queen of lawn signs. A few years back, I did this project where I counted a bunch of lawn signs with, with Dwayne Bratt from Mount Royal University to see if they were indicative of the, um, of the outcome. And we actually found lawn signs were a good predictor of uh, election outcome. Um, the other thing that came out of that, top, of that particular study was Dwayne and I swore we would never count lawn signs again. It's <laughs> <laughs> a one and done exotic. project, absolutely. But, uh, yeah, so, so you've got social media, so you've got lawn signs, you've got lit drops at the doors, you've got, you've got door knocking. There are some uh, forums going on, some online forums. I've, I've tried to tune into a few of them, but, you know, literally they're just, they have audiences of a few hundred. So, um, you know, it's, it's a big city. There's, um, you know, I, I think, you know, we've got... I think a million two, a million four for population. But you know, in terms of in terms of voting age, um, Calgarians, we've got almost a million. I think there's four hundred thousand households. So, you know, it's just it's hard to door knock a city this this big. And you know, a friend of mine brought it to my attention that like, you know, in Canadian politics, um, the, the mayor of Calgary gets the second highest number of total votes of any other sort of elected office in Canada, right? So we don't vote directly for uh, prime minister or premier, right? And so you've got like the mayor of Toronto, uh, you know, will get votes. And then the mayor of Calgary is elected with the, the next highest number of votes. Because you look at Montreal or Vancouver or something, they're, you know, a bunch of sort of smaller municipalities. So um, you know, here we are in this um, political environment right now where these candidates have very little opportunity to get uh, their message out. They've got, you know, there's so much noise out there. There's so much other stuff taking up the oxygen in the room. Um, so, you know, but you've got these people who don't have the power of a party behind them, who've got to reach 400,000 households. And in a normal election year, they would Stampede is almost like the unofficial start of a municipal election campaign. These candidates miss the opportunity to shake hands at Stampede, go to all those Stampede events. They they miss the opportunity to interact with like, oh, I don't know, a thousand people one night at Global Fest or all those other things that are, are normally in a the toolkit of a politician. They're just not there for this municipal election. So um, I really do think, you know, you know, in the history books, 2021 municipal election is going to have a little asterisk beside it because it was just so different than um, any other municipal election we've ever had in the city. It's, it seems like a challenging year to put yourself in as a candidate, but yet we have, and you said, because there isn't an incumbent mayor, is that also what's opened up that, that, that flood of tw- like, I would call 28 candidates a flood. <laughs> it's an absolute flood. And, you know, and it happens when we don't have an incumbent mayor, because the one thing about municipal politics, it's really hard to unseat an incumbent mayor. Um, I mean, you have to go back to, I think, the 80s um, to find an example where an incumbent mayor was defeated in Calgary. Happened a little more recently in, in Edmonton. And in even city councillors, it's, it's the exception to the rule when a sitting city councillor gets voted out. So incumbency mm-hmm. is huge in municipal politics. So when we have this municipal election, when so few candidate, when so few uh, councillors are running again, like this is your chance. If you have had a dream of being mayor in the last 11 years, this is your chance because this is the first race where there really is a chance um, that you could sort of break through. Now, we had a lot of people kick tires in 2010 when Nancy first ran, right? When mm-hmm. Ronconi stepped down and that race was open. There were a lot of candidates, and I think that I'm going to say there was something like 15 to 18 candidates that were kicking tires. But they, you know, they went to stampede events. They spent the whole summer trying to fundraise, trying to get their message out. And by the time that, uh, by the time they had to sort of commit, and you know, the, the date that they had to submit their name to run, a bunch of them had dropped out. A bunch of them realized that they just weren't going to get the money together. They weren't going to get that support together. They were seeing other campaigns running better, harder campaigns. And so 
in early September when they had to make a decision about what they wanted, whether they wanted their name on the ballot or not, a bunch of them dropped out. We didn't have that opportunity to kind of thin things out because so few of these candidates really had an opportunity um, to find out whether their message was going to resonate, whether their fundraising was going to come together, that sort of thing. So again, I think if this was another year, um, we would have had a whole bunch of candidates at the beginning of September realize it didn't make sense for them to go forward, and we would have had a much smaller ballot if if we had if we had that typical weeding out process. Right. I think that deadline was last week, wasn't it? That was like almost in line with election day, wasn't it, or the day after? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm, I, I think it was, I think yeah, it was the same on the day. Yeah, I think it was pretty yeah, close. You're putting me on the spot again and I should have <laughs> researched all this stuff, but, um, and it's funny, all the weeks are, are, um, coming together, but you know what? It was the same day as the federal election. Now that I That's remember I thought. it, That's because, yeah. um, you know, I, I was, I, I thought, oh, election day is going to be quiet. And then early that morning we found out that, you know, Kent Hare was not, you know, and that, that was like Kent Hare's announcement. He announced on the day that, uh, the, the ballot would be finalized. He announced that morning before the noon deadline that he wouldn't be running. And you're right, that was only a little over a week ago. So, yes, they, they all, days, days become weeks, weeks become months. Right, right. Um, when you've got this many candidates, does it still, and again, I know we're resisting, you know, part of your position in the world is not to comment directly on any candidates, which I appreciate that. But does this end up still being a, a race between a smaller group? Like we got, oh, there's 28, but fundamentally, does it end up boiling down to either past city councillors or people that are, and there's names that we've all seen that tend to have a little bit more prominence or certainly have maybe a little bit more brand awareness, if you want to mm-hmm. treat it that way, in terms of like, if I think of the 28 candidates, I can think of the top three or the, sorry, I can I won't even say top three, the three that I can think of are four, and then it falls off really, really quickly after, after that. Does it end up being... Or does this many candidates really shake up the market and kind of move votes around? Well, you know, the most important currency in municipal politics is name recognition. And that's because we don't have political parties. So, um, you know, coming into the race with name recognition is huge. And so the current city councillors that are running, and there's three of them, they just, they have this huge, huge advantage because in the last four years, their name has been in the news. And then you have, you know, some, you know, then you've got another tier of of candidates who, you know, they're quite credible. When you go to their sites, they're running professional, credible Mm -hmm. campaigns. They're putting out thoughtful policy. They're doing sort of all sorts of those things. But, you know, apart from the three city councillors, I don't think there's really any other candidates that came into this race with sort of strong name recognition. If you go back to 2010, we had uh, Rick McIver, who was a sitting city council member name recognition. We had Barb Higgins, who was a, a, a former news anchor, huge recognition. And then we had Nenshi, who was that, you know, fairy tale come from behind candidate. And he was the one who was sort of able to break out from the pack. But um, it's a little bit of sort of a, a retro, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's kind of, a, it's, it's a little bit of a, uh, a misinterpretation of the facts if you look at Nenshi as somebody who just sort of came out of nowhere. He okay. might not have been a household name, but he had run for um, an aldermanic seat one time before. He was heavily involved um, in, in, you know, in, in the political realm. So people in the political realm knew him, and he came into the campaign with, with a pretty big army of supporters and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And then, um, you know, he went into the summer with, you know, with, a, with an army of supporters. He turned that into some notoriety and some name recognition. And then, you know, and then he had an army of supporters um, that really sort of drove his, his election home. And he didn't win with a, with a clear majority. He won with a plurality of votes. So, um, you know, so, so that, that, the, the Nancy thing, it's, um, I know there's, there's a whole bunch of candidates that want to, um, you know, that, that, that want to repeat that pattern, but it was very specific to Nenshi and um, hard to repeat it if you didn't have the kind of um, weight in the political community that Nenshi had before the election campaign. Plus he had the summer, he had this summer when nothing else was going on to, you know, to till his soil and to get there. And so um, this is why I feel hugely frustrated on behalf of all of these other candidates is COVID, the federal election, and everything else has prevented these other candidates from being able to have that sort of breakthrough. But, you know, there's, there's, uh, by the time we go to air, there's, there's still a couple of weeks left and mm-hmm. 
That's the great thing about politics. Like anything can happen. And even with Nenshi, at this point in the election, it didn't look like he was going to win. There was, there was dynamics that went on with the other candidates and it was a last minute surge. So uh, I don't want to discount the idea that there could be a last minute surge, but um, well, that's it the is. fun. Just, we, we we don't really know, right? <laughs> we, we don't really know, and uh, and and so, I appreciate so that. many so many voters, uh, their vote is still up for grabs. So, um, you know, a, a surprising tidbit about one of the candidates, and uh, mm-hmm. a surprisingly strong performance of a, you know, of one of the more distant candidates at the last minute. You know, could you know could shift things? Mm-hmm. Could shift things for sure. Yeah. No, that's I I love. I think well, we all like a little excitement. Nobody likes to watch the game where the one team just runs all over the other team. You want to see an actual bit of a, you want to see a competition to kind of at, at, at play. Was, am I correct also, and it's kind of going way back, was it also at the time that Nietzsche really capitalized like 10 years ago when maybe social media doesn't play the same role as it played? Well, it didn't as it plays in our world today. Did he also capitalize very strongly on that, on that as a toolkit at the time that the other candidates hadn't? That's my memory of the time, but that's a while back now. Right, right. I, well, he certainly um, used that tool better than the other candidates did. But um, again, I also think it's, it's maybe a bit of a, a funny retrospective on history. I think it was part of uh, Nenshi's success, but maybe we overestimate how strong it was. I think probably okay. much stronger for Nenshi was just the many, many coffee parties he attended and the face-to-face stuff. And, and I also remember on election day, I don't know how many people they deployed, but you know, they had a couple hundred people who chalked up all the sidewalks, right? Vote for Nenshi and that I sort know, of thing. The city thing. was so, purple. That building on McLeod Trail in 25th, and all of a sudden it was just a purple building out of nowhere. And that was like the week before, a couple weeks before the election. <laughs> yeah, so I think social media was the tool, but I also think uh, you, can't just, you can't just credit it to social media. There was a ground game there that um, I don't think Nenshi always gets credit for. Oh, I appreciate it. Well, I guess sometimes it's easy for us to go, oh, well, that was, it was that, that was the thing. Like we, we like to jump to that end and then go, and, and then it helps create understanding where everything is always more complicated than sometimes we, we want it to be. Uh, before we get into the plebiscites, because I really want to talk about these questions, because I've been looking at them, staring at them and still struggling to maybe even understand how I would vote. And even if I've had a chance to look at them in ahead of time, I heard something interesting. Someone I was chatting with the other day, they said, Hey, what you got to remember with a mayoral candidate or the mayor is this isn't a political party in the sense that they don't just lay down the law and call the shots that this, they are kind of more the this, the chairman at the meeting, not necessarily like, yes, they are the mayor, but, and they've got to really be able to bring people together to make things happen. Cause you know, a slightly left leaning mayor and a slightly right wing leaning council might create a lot of deadlock on a lot of, a lot of important issues. So I don't know how much is that. Am I right to think of that as like, I feel now I need to look back at their history of their collaboration and their leadership of their ability to get people to go along that don't have to go along mm-hmm. as more of a factor than necessarily what their personal policy positions are. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, we always say the mayor is just one vote on council, right? They have the, their vote has the same weight as the 14 other councillors, And so, um, you know, and I think you look at sort of somebody like Nenshi, who's uh, really been a great personality, but he's somebody who's maybe struggled sometimes to get, um, right. you know, a majority of votes. I remember like early in his camp, early in his um, tenure, there was a lot of talk about secondary suites. It took him a really long time to get that one through because he couldn't get the votes together. And then you look at sort of uh, Mayor Bronconier, who who was sort of like a had maybe a lower profile you know, not such a controversial mayor. I mean, the one thing that Bronconi was good at was counting to eight, right? Like he just didn't take, he just didn't take a vote to council unless he knew he had his eight votes. And so, you know, he was one type of politician that just, you know, he just, he knew his job was just to like wrangle eight cats. And um, so, (laughs) you know, that's, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's really important that our next mayor sort of be collaborative um, bring people together because, you know, it's just going to be chaos if we have a city council where, you know, the mayor is always offside with the rest of council. We talk about the mayor being a bully pulpit, um, you know, the mayor's ability to sort of get the attention to an issue and bring people together. Um, but, but so you say, okay, well, look at who's got a history of being collaborative. Well, you know, you may have a history of being collaborative with a certain type of people, yeah. but you know, if, if we elect a very conservative mayor, but all the councillors are very progressive, you know, maybe that person is good at, at bringing collaboration among like-minded conservatives, but maybe not through a diverse group. And the same with, you know, if we get a very yeah, progressive right. mayor, but the rest of council is quite conservative. So, um, 
for sure, I think being collaborative is one of the key things you need if you're going to be a successful mayor. But it's even hard to predict who they're going to have to be wrangling and what and, and what that will look like with the next city council. Yeah, based on what you just said, that almost that that those cards will land where they land essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, as a voter, you go with what you believe and what you feel, but you might end up with like the, the what, what what the what the eight cats look like. As like the wrangling cats, we've all know the joke. I think it, it holds very true in this situation, and I appreciate that we. But we'll see very quickly as you know, Calgarians. Are we getting things moving forward? Are we hearing the same issue in the news over and over and over again? I think that's where you start to see whether it's, quote unquote, is it a well-oiled machine or is it not? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, getting into the, the plebiscite questions, like, you know, I'm looking at the first one and I know you, you've done some polls on this, correct? Like you've had some people in the room chatting about these. Uh, well, it, it, yeah, yeah, I've done, yeah, I've done some polling and some focus groups. Yeah. And, okay. Um, okay. And what are you seeing? Like, I'm just looking at the first one. You know, are you in favor of reintroducing fluoridation of the municipal water supply? Yes or no. When you're putting this to a group of individuals, do people feel they have enough information? Like, again, without doing some research, I don't know how to answer that question as a standalone. I just don't. Right. So, so whether I've done quantitative or qualitative research, the answer I've always gotten back is like, oh my gosh, I don't know. I haven't thought about it. Of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, these are, these are early days. So now some of the older people remember when we um, debated about fluoride in the city before. And so, uh, you know, they, they've got some more firm opinions on it. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, the average person just, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't know. So, um, so actually funny enough, I think the fluoride, Plebiscite is one that's maybe a little bit more straightforward. I think people understand what a yes vote means and a no vote means. And so they just have to decide, do I think fluoride is a good thing uh, for public health or not? And then they'll vote accordingly. Um, so, yeah. So That but, one but feels still, like they, I have the they ability. Yeah. They haven't thought about it. And I actually have a, a really good friend who's like just the most, you know, the, the most politically astute person I know he is on top of everything and we were talking about this the other day and I mentioned fluoride and he was actually a big um he was very involved in the last fluoride plebiscite it is something he's held firm views on for years since that last plebiscite and I was talking to him and he said oh my gosh I forgot we were talking about fluoride right and so I thought well if this guy forgot um you know what hopes does the average person have and to your point, that does feel like a yes or no. And maybe I don't have mm-hmm. all the information, but I know what I'm saying yes to. I know what I'm saying no to. The other two questions I've I found personally, and they were I was listening to some uh, David Gray this morning on CBC, and he got into the daylight savings time question. They spent the first ten minutes going, "Well, what? Okay, what are we saying we want to keep, or what are we saying we want to not?" Just even understanding what we're voting for, saying yes or no to. So I'll start with that one. Do you want Alberta to adopt year-round daylight saving time? which is summer hours, eliminating the need to change our clocks twice a year, yes or no. I feel there's some people who are going to be going, well, wait a second, what, what is yes and what is no? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I did this, um, I asked this question in a focus group and it turned out to be this kind of like who's on first kind of focus group, right? So somebody would say like, I don't want to change. And I'm like, okay, so you want to keep with our current system? No, I don't want to change the clock. Okay, so you do want to change the clock. You do want, you know, permanent daylight saving time. And, and they're like, that's right. I don't want to wake up in the dark. But, but, wait, a, wait, wait a second. What? Wait, that's, wait, that's wait, actually wait just what you agreed to. <laughs> yeah, I want, I want daylight when I wake up. That's what daylight savings time is. No, no, that's not what daylight saving time is. And then, and then you'd have other people in the group and they'd say, well, I, I want to be like Saskatchewan. Well, Saskatchewan has, has permanent standard time. So, um, so it was really this sort of who's on first conversation. And, and really the thing that always got us caught up was people would say, I don't want to change. What do you want? Do you not want to change the system or do you not want to change the clocks? And then really, we didn't come to any consensus at all. People were just in a muddle by the end of the conversation and realized that, it, you know, it's just not as simple as change the clock, not change the clock. It is um, what time will the sun come up in the winter? What time will it set in the summer? In the summer. Um, yeah. Yeah, I did give them credit this morning. They had somebody on who actually talked about it very logically and talked about where these there had been some failed, and they were not saying pro or con, but they talked about failed attempts, whether it was in Russia, they talked about certain aspects of the US, and but they actually really talked about what the consequences were of choosing one versus the other, and it, it helped a little bit. So I'm glad to hear that it's at least, least getting out there, and there's some 
conversation happening about it. So you don't walk in with your long pencil going, um, hmm, I don't know. And then I can just see people behind the privacy screen on their phone, Googling things. To yeah. try to get some information. And it would have made things uh, more complicated, but I actually think like once people have a chance to think about it, they're kind of disappointed that the ballot doesn't ask about permanent daylight saving time, permanent standard time, or the status quo. Um, you know, that makes the question even more complicated, but that was kind of where the discussion went when I had focus groups. Should section 36, uh, bracket two of the constitution act, 1982 parliament and the government of Canada's commitment to the principle of making equalization payments be removed from the constitution? Yes or no. That's a, that one feels more complicated than the other two we even put together. <laughs> well, the reason that this one feels so complicated is because this is not what the government's been talking about, right? Like when we talk about equalization, the government talks about how unfair it is, how Alberta needs a new deal. Um, but I think a lot of voters are going to be surprised when they read the question and find out that the question isn't asking them if they support the idea of a new deal. The question is asking them if they support the idea of moving, removing equalization from the Constitution. And um, when I have polled on this, I found that Albertans are about split down the middle in terms of how they would vote to this particular question, right? Um, but when you just ask people about equalization, I, I find the general consensus, and of course there's different, differing opinions, but the general consensus among Albertans is that um, they, they think the current formula is unfair to Alberta, but they don't have a problem with the principle of equalization, right? We live in a federation. It makes sense to Albertans that rich provinces should be paying more than poor provinces, that there should be some mechanism that ensures Canadians across the country get access to the same level of services. So my read on things is that most Albertans aren't upset with the principle of equalization. They're upset with the implementation of equalization. So what do you do? You're faced with this question. And, and then we've got this added complication here in Alberta. We have just put the ask out to the federal government, to the army, to help us with our hospitals and our COVID crisis. So how do you then turn around and say, I want to remove equalization from the Constitution when Alberta themselves is turning to the rest of Canada for aid on this particular thing? So, um, so I really do think that there's going to be a lot of Albertans that just, you know, they don't want to say... Uh, you know, they, 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 they want to use this, um, you know, Jason Kenney saying this referendum is an opportunity for us to send a message to Ottawa. So there is going to be a bunch of Albertans that want to send a message to Ottawa, but don't necessarily think that equalization is a bad thing. What does that person do? And to be clear, these are both provincial plebiscite questions where the fluoride one is municipal. So these are arguably just setting fodder in place for a future for a future uh, provincial election and what's kind of happening there in terms of our ability to kind of rattle a bit of a saber potentially. And there's been a lot of angst in Alberta and our, certainly the first question feels like it's trying to tap, tap into that, but arguably these don't go anywhere unless someone decides like these aren't yes, no's we have enough. Yes, as we do it. That's not what either of these are implying. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and you talked about like the term plebiscite, right? And that's not a very common thing. And we talk more about referendum is I think a word that people are more, uh, familiar with. But so here's the thing. When you, the person who gets the most votes for mayor will become mayor. The person in your ward who gets the most votes for council will become a councillor, et cetera, et cetera. But these plebiscites are for the most part just advisory. Um, I think the provincial government said that uh, they'll, they'll treat the daylight saving time one like it's, uh, it's binding, but you know, we'll, we'll see about that. But, you know, and, and I think I think the fluoride one will, um, you know, as long as the vote is decisive, probably city council will go along with whatever it says. But, but definitely this one on equalization, Jason Kenney has always said that, you know, there's really nothing we can do. It's not in Alberta's power to remove equalization from the constitution. Um, mm -hmm. Even Jason Kenney has said the, the sole purpose of this ref, of this plebiscite is just to send a message to Ottawa. Uh, but given the current, um, unpopularity of the premier, what's going on with COVID, the confusion about this question. I, I can't imagine, regardless of the outcome, I can't imagine what message this would actually send to Ottawa. You're, it's interesting, like plebiscite, I keep hearing the word, but yet they're referred to as referendum questions on the, on the website I'm on, which is the um, Vote Elections Calgary website, calgary.ca. But yeah, they are referred to as referendum, which is, again, <laughs> fortunately or not, I grew up in Quebec, so I'm very familiar with the word referendum and some of the political uh, angst that kind of came with all of those referendums that I had the privilege or not to, li to live through. <laughs> 
I remember being feeling very feeling like a bit of a political refugee when I moved to Alberta. I'm like, nobody talks about politics here. That has since changed. But when I moved here 20 <laughs> years ago, it wasn't like in Quebec where, you know, the Western Western Canadian vote is very consistent. The Quebec vote, oh, if they don't like what you did, you're out and it will put somebody right. else in that chair. And if you don't perform, they will kick you out too. <laughs> it's a much more flamboyant voter culture, I would say, or more um they're, they're, they're willing to change the, 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 the rules uh, if they're not happy with what they get. Where, again, Alberta's moving into a different position, like you said. I like what you said. You really made me think about this two-party versus three-party system and feeling like I don't always have the options that I need. And that's, that's mm-hmm. an interesting paradigm considering the, the climate. And it feels, like that with some of the, it feels like that with some of the plebiscite questions too, right? Like I haven't actually been given enough categories to vote on. Yeah, there's more nuance. I need I need more nuance. I'll touch on this lastly because this is so far out of my realm. School board voting for, for Senate seats. How, does the average individual even have a clue what's going on there? Unless you go out of your way to to be involved or to be informed. No, you really have to go out of your way to sort of understand those two races, right? Now, now school board. I mean, whoever gets the most votes, no matter how many those are, they become your school board trustees. So, right. you know, if you care about that stuff, you you need to research it. Otherwise, you're just kind of you know, leaving it up to other people. The Senate stuff is like another animal entirely, right? This again is we're just, we'll just be electing, you know, what, what we call senator elects, right? These are, these are names that will be put to the prime minister as suggestions. And, you know, Trudeau has not taken up Alberta's suggestions on Senate. Some Senate elect, some senator elects were appointed by Harper, but um, now that Trudeau has been reelected, it's, it's unlikely. So, you know, this has become even stranger, right? We're we're voting for, uh, we're voting for people to have their name put forward to an office with no guarantee that they will um, be put forward. And historically, um, this is one area where party politics has come in. Candidates traditionally have sort of come out of the, um, you know, the, come out of the Conservative Party, formerly the Progressive Conservative Party. Mm-hmm. A lot of people on the ballot this time are clear. Uh, UCP supporters and are, are almost running on a conservative platform. So, um, you know, if you want to have your say on that one, you can do a little research as to, um, you know, is, uh, you know, are they a sort of a traditional UCP or who's seeking a Senate seat or are they a bit of an insurgent who comes from another political movement? But unless you're purposely interested in being involved, that that one almost feels like and I don't want to minimize, but that could that could easily fall into the why bother category if historically it hasn't even had impact, to your point. Right. But, you know, it's, it's sort of why bother. But if you believe in the idea of an elected Senate, then, mm-hmm. you know, you should participate in this one to send the message to Ottawa that you want an elected Senate. Yes, I appreciate it. We've, we've, we've fought long and hard for the right to be able to vote. There's no there's no reason not. Like, you need to get out there and participate. But I was like, right. well, not this make it about that. But I, my friend's like, well, I don't know if I'm going to. I'm like... I certainly try to to shame them into it as much as I can. I'm like, you must, you have to do the research, <laughs> take the time. Uh, well, Jen- you know, I wrote a I wrote a piece for CBC, I think maybe four years ago, and and the uh, somebody at CBC asked me, you know, would you write a piece on why voter apathy is bad? And I said, well, no, I won't, because you know, I, I don't I don't think we should coerce people to vote. And so I think the the piece I wrote was called Apathy. Who cares? And you know, and basically I argued that like I, I think there's yeah I, I think that I think there's a good reason for people to get involved in politics and pay attention and that sort of thing. But um, you know, uh, like you know, I don't follow basketball. Um, some people don't follow politics like I do. I, I actually urge people like yeah, I think you should participate. Um, but you know, if you're really not going to invest the time, if you're just going to sort of vote for somebody based on their gender or the ethnicity of their last name or, or, or something sort of superficial, it's like, I mean, this is going to sound really controversial, but like, you know, I just rather you stay home if you're not really going to make a thoughtful choice. So, um, and again, I don't beat anybody up who's feeling confused or uncertain at this time. We've got a lot on our plate and, um, so, you know, in terms of in terms of voter apathy, like, you know, please, please, please try and invest, um, try and invest the time to really make a thoughtful choice. Um, but, you know, number, the, the first priority, make a thoughtful choice. <laughs> Second priority is please don't make an unthoughtful choice. Right. So. 
no, I, I, I very much appreciate your perspective on that. And well, it was kind of my goal, even with the show, I looked, you know, months ago, I was like, oh, do I get the candidates on? I'm like, mm, that's too focused. That's too going down individual rabbit holes. Like, and that's 28 little, podcasts. Yeah, that is 28. Cause you can't, yeah, if you do two and don't do the other 27, 26, you're now, you're now clearly leaning in a direction, which is not what this show is all about. So mm-hmm. I went with, and thank you very much for coming on, chatting with someone who can give us a little bit of a broader kind of thinking filter on, you know, what it's all about, how we even kind of maybe organize our thoughts. And then, to, and then by all means, go out and do our research. My wife asked me this morning, she goes, oh, you're doing another one of these today? Yeah. I said, she's like, well, which way are you leaning? I'm like, I don't know. I haven't done enough research yet. I'm setting my framework and then I'm going to go do my research. She was laughing at me. She's like, well, how many, I'm like, I'm trying to set my framework to even know what I should be researching and what filters I should bring to this conversation. Then I'll go and start reviewing their different platforms and try to wade through where I'm already leaning. And is it because I've been influenced or is it because I really know? And that's my own journey to be on. And I really hope our audience uh, maybe gets inspired to go on that same journey. Mm-hmm. Great. Great. Thank you very much. Janet, it was an absolute pleasure having you on. What's uh, Janet Brown Opinion Research? Planet Janet. I love your I love your URL, by the way. Planet Janet. Mm-hmm. Just something something that tells me something about you. I don't know. I love it. Planetjanet.ca. Uh, check out your website. Uh, what's other ways if people want to reach out and get a hold of you? I'm on Twitter, PlanetJanetYYC. And uh, yeah, it, it, reach out anytime. Janet, it was an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Keep up the awesome work you do. And I look forward to crossing paths again. Thank you. 